Amen. If you're new with us, we've been uh, going through a short series on the church. This is our final week uh, of six. We have looked at belonging, assembling, caring, serving, last week welcoming, and this week witnessing uh, from the book of Acts. We're going to look at Acts 1 to 11, uh, first chapter 1 to 11, but uh, if you have a Bible, uh, it'll be helpful as I want to consider a large portion of the entire book of Acts this morning. Uh, and it's always good to have a Bible open anyway, just to make sure what I'm saying is actually in the Bible. Uh, and so uh, let's pray together and ask for the Lord uh, to bless our study together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open uh, your word today. We just want to be like this early church as they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. As we read throughout the book of Acts, the word of God increased and prevailed. We know that you build your church by your word. You bring us to life by your word. And we pray today that you would come and renew your people and bring people to life today by the power of the gospel revealed in Holy Scripture. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Everybody said, amen. Well, some of you who are around my age or perhaps others may recall a certain video game back in the day called Contra. If you played this game much at all, you're familiar with this special code. It was the Konami code. And if you uh, had this particular code and you knew how to enter it, you could get 30 extra lives. And so before the opening screen uh, came on, you would hit the following buttons. Some of you probably remember this code. Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B, A, start. And voila, you had 30 extra lives. And I used that code a lot, and I spent far too much time uh, beating that game. When you have 30 extra lives, you can live pretty carelessly. But that's a video game. There is no special code to get 30 extra lives in this life. This life is all we have before we see the king. You've only got one shot, as Eminem says. Or as Linwell Miranda says, we're not going to lose our shot or throw away our shot. So what are we going to do with this shot? What are we going to do with this one life? We don't have 30. What are we going to do with this one life that we have? And the book of Acts points us in the right direction, that we want to spend it bearing witness to Jesus Christ. Making the gospel known to the ends of the earth by the power of the Spirit in joyful partnership with the local church. And then die and go to your reward. That's a good life. But you might wonder, what, what actually can be accomplished in one life? Again, the book of Acts is very instructive and inspiring. New Testament scholar Michael Green has a book entitled 30 Years That Changed the World. It's a great title for the whole book of Acts because that's what, what it basically consists of. And he says this, three crucial decades in world history. That's all it took. In the years between AD 33 and 64, a new movement was born. In those 30 years, it got sufficient growth and credibility to become the largest religion the world has ever seen and to change the lives of hundreds of millions of people. It has spread into every corner of the globe and has more than 2 billion adherents. It has had an indelible impact on civilization, on culture, on education, on medicine, on freedom, and of course, the lives of countless people worldwide. And the seedbed for all of this, the time when it took decisive root, was in these three decades. It all began with a dozen men and a handful of women. And then the Spirit came. 
Think about that. 30 years with a group of people far, far smaller than what is assembled today. What may God do with us if he gives us 30 more years? If he gives us 10 more years? So I love the book of Acts. My pastor friend in Australia, Adam Ramsey, takes his church through Acts every year for about eight weeks just to keep the mission in front of his people. And it is good for us to revisit the missional history of the church here and ask God to do it again. To ask him to do it again. The book of Acts, if you're new to Acts, is the history of the church to a certain degree. It's really the history of the mission of the church. And, you know, there are various types of people who study history. You, you could study history as a, as a cold scholar where you're just looking at details and dates and maps, but you're really not transformed by what you're studying. You, you can kind of sit distant from it. Or people who study history are often just casual admirers of history. So they may read a few Civil War books and collect some old guns, but there's a big difference in being a gun collector and to be an actual soldier. And that's the third group of people that often study history. It's people that want to learn from history because they see, them part, they see themselves as being part of that history. A soldier may study military history in order to be more effective in his or her current time of, of mission. And so it is with the book of Acts. We don't study Acts as a, as a cold scholar, distant from it, never transformed by it. And we don't look at it just as some admirer of uh, ancient history, but we look at it as people who recognize that these are our brothers and sisters and this is our history. And next week we celebrate 10 years as a church, but really we're going to be celebrating 2,000 years as a church. This is our history. And we get to continue the mission of the book of Acts. The book of Acts really could begin with a popular phrase, already in progress. And it ends with, to be continued. It's already in progress because Jesus has finished his work. He's about to ascend to heaven. And it finishes really with not an ending, as we'll look at in just a moment. It's a very abrupt ending. And the implication is that the church is living in Acts 29. We are continuing the mission that we see in this book. And so what I want you to look at with me this morning in the first 11 verses are three continuations. We see, first of all, that Luke's message continues. Secondly, that Jesus' mission continues. And thirdly, that the church's mission continues. So Luke's message continues in verse 1, just a word on this. In the first book, he says, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So you see it immediately in verse 1 that this is the continuation of Luke's first book, which is the book of Luke. Luke, the doctor, the historian, the companion of the Apostle Paul, Throughout the book of Acts, you see these we passages as Luke is referring to himself being alongside the Apostle Paul. He was there for many reasons. Uh, of course, Paul got beat up a lot, so it was great to have a doctor on hand. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he was a historian. He was given an eyewitness account, and he says to his friend here, O Theophilus, who may not be a Christian, uh, who, who's probably some kind of Roman uh, leader, perhaps in the military, uh, in, in Luke 1, he says that he wants to give him an orderly account so that he may know, have certainty for the faith, that, that what Luke is describing in his gospel really happened as he had eyewitness reports and he gathered all of these, all this data and he puts it down in an orderly account and in the book of Luke he, he ends with uh, kind of the, the, the scene of the ascension and now he says, 
O Theophilus, I have just told you what, what Jesus began to do and teach. And so Luke here has a real historical purpose. He has probably, you might say, a political purpose as there's a lot that's intended to be sort of in a political apologetic concerning the Roman attitude toward Christianity. He wants to say something about the nature of Christianity, that it's not militant, uh, but, but rather it is one that is heraldic, that's proclaiming the gospel. Uh, and then he's got this real intense evangelistic purpose in the book of, of Acts. 28 chapters in this book, and there are 32 speeches. About a third of the book of Acts is speech material. And I think that's very significant. You might ask the question, what led to this explosive growth of the early church? It was the preaching of the gospel. And again and again and again in the book of Acts, you see people proclaiming the good news. And so Luke is continuing this message that he began in his gospel. Secondly, we see here that Jesus' ministry continues. Notice how Luke describes this. He says in this first book, he said he, he's dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, which means Jesus is not finished with his work. He only began it in the Gospels. The work is continuing. All that he began to do and teach, notice the doing and the teaching, it's word and deed in the ministry of Jesus. What John Calvin called the holy knot. These, these two things should not be separated. Some people want the works of Jesus, but not the words of Jesus. Some people want uh, the, 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 the words of Jesus, but not the works of Jesus. No, the church continues to do the ministry of Jesus in word and deed. These two things go together. It's unlike Taco Bell and KFC. When they put them together, they just don't go together. It's, it's a terrible thing, you know? Like, these things should not be. Uh, but the, the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus, his character, his mercy, his justice, and his proclamation of the kingdom of God, these two go together. And Luke says that, I told you in, in my first book all that he began to do, by implication now he is continuing to do that work through his people by the Spirit. We may, we may, may say before that, I wish Jesus were still on earth so he could uh, do ministry here on earth. And Luke is saying he is. His church is here doing this work, continuing what he began to do and to teach. Verse 2, he says, Until that day in which he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Not a lot of details are given here. It's just he was taken up. Almost like it's not a big deal. But he, he's taken up, not like an astronaut, but in some way Jesus ascends, and you see the ascension is tied to the Spirit all through these first 11 verses. And I think in many ways the ascension of Jesus is like the passing of the mantle from the prophet Elijah to Elisha. And in fact, the same language is used as Elijah was taken up in that whirlwind, as the text says. And right before he was taken up, what did Elisha ask for but a double portion of the Spirit to carry on the ministry of Elijah. And so it is here in the New Covenant, Jesus, the greater Elijah, is taken up and he gives his disciples, his apostles, his people, the Holy Spirit so they can continue his mission. Until he was taken up, he says. And what was he focused on before he was taken up? Verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, 
appearing to them for 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. 40 days of teaching. What do you do after you rise from the dead? Bible study. 40 days, and the content of this study is on the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to see how Acts begins with this emphasis of Jesus teaching on the kingdom. And at the very end of the book of Acts, Acts 28, Paul eventually makes it to Rome. He's in prison. And Luke ends his second book this way, referring to Paul. He lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that's how the book ends, without hindrance. It's probably not the way your English teacher would advise you to conclude a narrative. But the implication, again, is this gospel is still going on. The kingdom is still being preached. So Jesus comes preaching the kingdom. It ends with Paul speaking about the kingdom. And this is how we continue the ministry of Jesus as a church. We continue to proclaim the king and his kingdom. We say repent to the world and believe in the king. You enter this kingdom not by your ethnicity or by your religious works, but by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We're proclaiming this kingdom. And so Jesus continues this work, and you see that demonstrated in the book of Acts. Verses 4 and 5, you see that this work is continued by the power of the Spirit. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized you with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Of course, he's speaking here of Pentecost, which is going to happen in Acts chapter 2. And he tells the apostles to wait on the promised Holy Spirit. Now think about this for a minute. They had been trained by Jesus for three years. That's a great seminary education. Three years with Jesus Christ. And you would think they're fully prepared now, right? But they still lack something. Power. Wait until the promise of the Father comes. Wait until the Spirit empowers you for mission. And what happens in Acts 2, we see that this promise is fulfilled, and all of a sudden, Peter, who was previously very cowardly in front of the little girl, who wouldn't even confess the name of Jesus, just hundreds of yards away from that event, is preaching with great boldness about the king in front of the religious establishment. That's the impact of the Spirit's power in their lives. And this is how Jesus continues his mission today through the church. By his word and by his spirit, we go about proclaiming the kingdom of God in word and deed. Listen to how Paul describes his ministry in Romans 15. He says, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. So Christ is continuing this work. He's working through him to bring the Gentiles to obedience. That's the nations. How? By word and deed. By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So Luke is saying, my message is continuing about Jesus Christ. Jesus' ministry is continuing by the Spirit through the church, and consequently now the church's mission continues. Verses 6 to 10. Now this is a remarkable text. I just want you to feel somewhat of the gravity of it. It's a very... Uh, 
combed over text in, in uh, evangelical circles. Verse 8 is the most popular verse, perhaps, in the book of Acts. But just think for a moment about where this is at. The, this, this is Jesus' last words to his apostles before he ascends. And we all know that last words are very meaningful, right? They tell us a lot about a person. And you can just read some throughout history and some of, the, some of people's last words are tragic, some are comical, some are inspiring. Louis XIV said, why are you weeping? Did you think I am immortal? Thomas Jefferson, is this the fourth? John Sedgwick, who was a general in the Civil War, with snipers hindering progress, his last words... His, his last words on earth were, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. <laughs> it turns out that they could. Well, here is the apostles' last question and Jesus' last words before the ascension. Here's the question. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? John Calvin notes there are as many errors in this question as words. I think that's a little too critical, but nevertheless, it, it does show that they, they don't really understand the kingdom of God yet. Just look at this question. They are looking for a political kingdom. Will you restore Israel? They're looking for a geographically restricted kingdom. Just one part of the Middle East. They're assuming, I think, an ethnically restricted kingdom. And they certainly don't see a two stages of the kingdom. The already is here, the not yet have, hasn't arrived. They misunderstand that the, the kingdom is spiritual, not earthly. It's global and not local. And it's both already and not yet. And they also assume somewhat of knowing the time. They think they can predict the full arrival of the kingdom. Will you restore it at this time? And so in light of that question, and it's a good question, Jesus responds with these words. Verse 7, he basically says, that's none of your business. Right? It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's not for you to know. And yet it hasn't stopped people throughout history from speculating about when the end might be. Harold Camping predicted it would be in 1994. I heard of one pastor who was doing a, a wedding one time on the date in which someone had predicted uh, the end was coming. And so the groom was very quick to say, we, we need to get this wrapped up quickly. You know, like, I don't have a contingency plan here. Uh, well, it didn't happen. You don't know, Jesus says. Which means you're not the exception. <laughs> you means all of us. And Jesus here is, is urging them to refrain from speculation so that they can stay focused on the present task. The question is not when. The question is, what do we do until then? That's the question. What do we do until the end? And fortunately, Jesus tells us in verses 8 to 11, he says, this is your business. Be my witnesses everywhere. Witnesses. This pops up over and over in the book of Acts, Acts 2.32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. 3.15. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are all witnesses. 
1039, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. 2215, for you will be witnesses for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. That's what a witness is. He basically says to them when he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. That is to tell people what you have seen, what you have heard, and what you have experienced. Tell people what has happened in history and tell people what has happened in your life. That's a witness. As we said before, the movie Field of Dreams, if you build it, they will come. Is a great for a movie, but it's a terrible evangelism strategy. It's not that we build stuff and people show up. We have to enter this world and be Jesus' witnesses. In our neighborhoods, in the marketplaces, on the ball fields, uh, in our schools, where we work, and so on. We must engage the world. And I want you to see here, as we bring this down to a real practical level, five truths regarding a witness from this text. First of all, the people who witness. Verse 8, every believer. While Jesus here is talking to his apostles specifically, we know that this idea gets worked out later in, in the book of Acts, that it is the apostles, later the pastors and teachers, that equip the saints to do the works of ministry. That every Christian is now empowered by the Holy Spirit in the new covenant to do ministry. That's one of the wonders of the new covenant. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, Peter uh, takes Joel's text and he basically says what Joel predicted has now come to pass. When he says, in the, in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So not just the prophets, not just the apostles, but your sons and daughters, that is God's people. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on your male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall pro prophesy. So we are not observers as Christians. We are participants in this mission. We have the same thing the early church had, the gospel and the Holy Spirit. And therefore all people are as witnesses. And this is how the gospel spread. As one writer says, we cannot hesitate to believe that the great mission of Christianity was in reality accomplished by means of informal missionaries. That's how it happened. Now, a very important verse in my mind on this is Acts chapter 8, verse 4. The gospel has went through Jerusalem, 5,000 plus believers, remarkable scene, scene after scene in the, in the early chapters of Acts, and then Stephen is martyred. And the church is scattered, and they basically are living out this table of contents that are, that's in Acts 1-8, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Persecution takes them into Samaria, and it says in Acts 8-4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now who were those who were scattered? Well, Acts 8-1, it says that they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Who is it that is preaching the word now in Judea and Samaria? Everybody but the apostles because they're still in Jerusalem. The gospel is spreading by means of, as this writer says, informal missionaries. It's the ordinary people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, that are accomplishing the mission of God. And I love this because you can get in on it. The mission of God is not for the special elite forces, Christians. It's for all of us. 
Again, to quote Michael Green on Acts 8, 4, he says, but as early as Acts 8, we find that it is not the apostles, but the amateur missionaries, <laughs> the men evicted from Jerusalem as a result of the persecution which followed Stephen's martyrdom, who took the gospel with them wherever they went. It was they who traveled along the coastal plains of Phoenicia over to the seas to Cyprus or struck up to, uh, north to Antioch. They were evangelists just as much as any apostle was. Indeed, it was they who took two revolutionary steps of preaching to Greeks and had no connection with Judaism and then with launching the Gentile mission from Antioch. It was an unselfish, unselfconscious effort. They were scattered from their base in Jerusalem and they went everywhere spreading the good news which brought joy, release, and new life to themselves. This must often have been not formal preaching but informal chattering to friends and chance acquaintances in homes and wine shops, on walks, and around market stalls. They went everywhere gossiping the gospel. They did it naturally, enthusiastically, and with the conviction of those who are not paid to say sort of thing. Consequently, they were taken seriously, and the movement spread notably among the lower class. I love that. The amateur missionaries gossiped the gospel in the shops, in the marketplaces. And so let me just encourage you, church. I know many of you do this so faithfully. We can also often have grandiose ideas about what a witness is. And we often just kind of see them as those are the formal missionaries who are in hard parts of the world, and many of them will die as a martyr, and many will, and we honor them. But the gospel has spread year after year, generation after generation, by the ordinary Christians who recognize they have everything they need, that the gospel is the power of God into salvation, and the Spirit of God's empowered them. And so uh, a young couple that moved here to the area, joined our church over the past year, move into a new subdivision, which is like everywhere around RDU, right? The, this subdivision starts a Facebook page. They get on the Facebook page, invite people over to their house for a Bible study, and they've got, I think, five couples now coming to this Bible study. This looks like your growth group, just saying, hey, what would it look like for us to, to prayerfully see one person come to faith through our group this year? We would baptize 50 new people if that happened. This looks like you thinking about your network that God's already placed in your life sovereignly, in your family, at your work, in your neighborhood, where you play. What might happen if we would live with a real gospel intentionality there? That's what Michael Green is saying that the early Christians were doing. That was Acts 8.4. They went about gossiping the gospel, preaching the word. That's the people who witness. Now, the path of a witness, back in verse 8. When Jesus says the word witness here, it's the word from which we get the word martyr from. Like entailed in this very idea of a witness is suffering. And you just see this lived out through the book of Acts. Stephen is martyred in Acts 7. James is beheaded in Acts 12. Paul is beat up all over the Mediterranean world, but Jesus is worth it. The gospel never triumphs apart from sacrifice. Someone has to die in order for people to live. That's what you might call the law of missions. The gospel only triumphs where there is sacrifice. As Tim Keller has put it well, the greater the effectiveness of a ministry, the greater the resistance and opposition. So we expect this, that there will be sacrifice, there will be suffering, there will be spiritual warfare. 
But there's good news. Thirdly, the power of a witness. You will receive power. This is not the first mention that Luke has had of power. He mentioned it in his first book at the end of Luke's gospel when he speaks of being clothed with power, that, that Jesus uh, will, will give them power to, to do this ministry. That language of being clothed is, is language you see in the Old Testament, for example, in the life of Gideon in Judges 6.34. That Gideon, this little man who's uh, tasked with a, with, a, with a great endeavor, is clothed with power, and that's what makes the difference. And that's what makes the difference for us. So we must not feel like this is a crushing burden to be a witness. We are empowered. We are freed. We are given vitality. And that's one of the great benefits of being in this new covenant age. Extraordinary spiritual power is given for Christ-exalting ministry. Interestingly, the Spirit is only mentioned five times in Matthew, four times in Mark but 53 times in Luke-Acts because mission requires the Spirit. Lloyd-Jones put it well when he says, I spend half my time telling Christians to study doctrine and the other half telling them that doctrine is not enough. We need the Spirit's power. And there are two big marks of genuine Spirit-filled living that you see in the book of Acts. First of all, boldness. Acts chapter 4, they're praying The Spirit comes, he gives them boldness to speak. The nine times that, quote, the fullness of the Holy Spirit is mentioned, it comes in reference to bold proclamation in the book of Acts. And the book, as I already indicated in Acts 28, ends with this word of boldness. The Spirit gives us confidence, gives us boldness. It's not the Spirit, he's not the Spirit of timidity. And the other mark is the magnifying of Jesus Christ as the Spirit's purpose is to exalt Jesus. And these apostles, these amateur missionaries in the early church had the gospel, they had the Holy Spirit. They had no backing, they had no reputation among the Jews, among the Greeks, among the Romans. They were viewed as being superstitious. Some even called the early church atheists because they didn't have a temple and people didn't understand them. They had no buildings they had no sacrifices. They had no life way. They, they, had no, they had no books like we have today. They had no Logos software. What they had was an utter dependence on the Spirit of God. Fourthly, the people who need a witness. The nations. You're going to be my witnesses, he says, in these areas. Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is how the book of Acts is outlined, Right? First seven chapters, the word of the Lord in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 to 12 in Judea and Samaria. Chapters 13 to 20 in Asia and Greece and 21 to 28 in Rome. It's a big mission. Jesus looks at these guys and says, I got a big mission for you. But these are not just geographical identity markers. There's actually more of a cross-culture emphasis, I think, with these notations. The gospel is going to cross cultures. So you may think of it like this. Our mission could be near far, far near, near near, or far far. Okay? What do I mean by that? Well, near and far. People could live in RDU, close to you, but culturally be radically different from you. 
And you are not really doing ministry in Jerusalem. You're actually crossing into another culture. Or far near, you might go to another city, say Richmond, Virginia. That's very similar to where you live. And so the cultures may not be that much different. Or near, near, that's your neighborhood where the cultures are similar. Or far, far, those are our international missionaries that, that are distance, a great distance from us and the culture is radically different as well. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to send you all over the place. You're going to not just go into different geographical zones, you're going to go into radically different cultures with the gospel. So don't, don't think of this little mission like I'm just restoring the, the promised land here. No, I am going to send you out to the ends of the earth. That means, church, our plans cannot be too big. John Wesley said, the world is my parish. We want the whole world for Christ. I love Isaiah 49, verse 6. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up for the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's a small thing. My salvation's going to reach to the ends of the earth. Do you think the gospel can't break through into North Korea? Do you think the gospel cannot break into the Muslim world? Into the secular American world? Or the secular European world? Oh, our plans cannot be too big. We have a big God, a global God. He's given us the people who need a witness, it's everyone. And finally, the passion of a witness is Jesus Christ. And this is really what set the, the, the church apart, right, was their passion, their unrelenting witness to Jesus Christ. They were captivated by him. And you see just a glimpse of that here in verses 9 to 11. And when he had said these things, they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Can you imagine this? And while they were gazing into heaven, behold, two men stood beside them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I would be standing there looking into heaven, wouldn't you? How many of you, when a balloon goes up, you just follow it? Right? A kite goes up, you just, where's it at? And you can just see these guys, what happened? What just happened? I've never seen an ascension before, have you? There, there, there's a state of bewilderment here. As Jesus has went into another realm, now, the book of Daniel, I meant to mention this before I got started. That's our next book to study, by the way. In two weeks, we'll study the book of Daniel for about 10 weeks. In Daniel 7, I think Daniel gives us the second part of this text. What happened after Jesus goes up into, up into the, to the clouds? Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven. He uses the same language Luke does of Daniel. There came one like, this, like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days... And was presented before him. And he goes on to talk about how he's been given glory. A lot of people read that text, I think, as a second coming of Jesus. But I don't think that's what it is. I think this is the ascension of Jesus. Having resurrected, ascended, and is now seated at the Father's right hand. Given all dominion. And think about that. As the ascended Lord. What does that mean for us? That Jesus our Lord has ascended. It means that he really does have authority over heaven and earth. 
And that's why the Great Commission is very significant when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. Sounds like a great idea. How do we know? Because he's ascended to heaven. All authority has been given unto him. He is with us and he has sent us. I mean, what would give us the audacity to engage the globe with the gospel? Who do we think we are? We're Jesus' people. And he's the ascended Lord of glory. And he's commissioned us. And he's with us. And this church, you see, is captivated by Jesus Christ. The men say, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. We will see him. And that's why on the lips of the early church, in speech after speech, is the glory of Jesus Christ. That's it. Acts 2.36, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel know that God has made him both Lord in Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Chapter 3, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Chapter 4, the religious leaders were annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Chapter 5, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus was the Christ. Chapter 6 and 7, Stephen's speech, after he gives it, he's about to be killed and he says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Chapter 8. Philip happens on the Ethiopian who's reading Isaiah 53, and he says, who is this guy? Fortunately, he wasn't reading like judges and a fat man stabbing a left-handed man or whatever. Like, that's a hard one to preach Christ, but this is an easy one. In Isaiah 53, it's a softball to Philip. Who is this guy? And he leads him to Jesus and baptizes him in Acts chapter 8. In Acts 9, a terrorist becomes the great evangelist in the Apostle Paul. I will show you how much you must suffer for my name. Acts 10 and 11, Peter gets a vision, and every deer hunter's favorite verse, rise, kill, and eat. And he gets a vision that the gospel is not just limited to Jews, but for the Gentiles. Acts 11, men of Cyprus and Cyrene were preaching the Lord Jesus. Acts 12, James is martyred, Peter is delivered, Herod is killed, and Luke says the word of God continued to prevail mightily. Acts 13, Paul's first recorded sermon, he concludes, Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You see, church, zeal for the mission only comes when we have zeal for the king. If there's no zeal for the king, there'll be no zeal for the mission. We know this, right? We are all witnesses, we are all evangelists for things we love. How many of you talked about how wonderful the weather was this week? I mean, I just kept saying it over and over and again. This weather makes me so happy. Or some restaurant that you've been to. Or if you have grandkids, how much you talk about them and show pictures of them. We talk about what we love. And the ordinary people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, equipped by the Word of God, captivated by the Son of God, accomplish the mission of God. And this, my friends, is a life worth living. We only have one. We don't have 30. 
And so let's pray today that the Spirit would empower us to be Jesus' witnesses. Let's pray for faithfulness and effectiveness in our missional efforts. It all began with a dozen men and a handful of women, and then the Spirit came. May God do it again. And may we never doubt the success of this mission. The word continues to spread mightily. And we read of that climactic vision in Revelation chapter 5. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. That's where all history is headed. And when we stand there with the company of redeemed We won't doubt how we got there. Someone bore witness to Jesus Christ for us. Someone had zeal for the king, therefore they had a zeal for the mission. Someone went about gossiping the gospel, preaching the word wherever they were. May we be faithful to this task until we see our king. Father, we thank you for your word today. We pray that your word would energize our faith, energize our mission Make us faithful until we see the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who ascended into heaven, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. All authority, we know, has been given to our King, and therefore we take his word seriously to go make disciples of all nations. And we never tire of this mission, Lord. I pray that we would not grow weary in well-doing, but you would give us fresh zeal today, fresh passion for the King and for his mission. And we pray this today in Jesus' good name. And everybody said, amen.